I wanted to also call out um, that today is a special day because this is the first day of Trinity's presence with us in kind of our merged state. So for those of you who uh, aren't aware, we're, we've been in the process of merging with Trinity Evangelical Free Church in El Cerrito, which also happens to be our grandmother church. In other words, the church that they started then started us. And so we've been in that process, and last week we had this wonderful time of worshiping together, and today many of the tr Trinity members are with us. And uh, Pastor Jeff and his wife Christy are here and their family too, so uh, they're going to be with us um, uh, over the next months. Uh, Pastor Jeff and, and Christy will be with us, and we're continuing to integrate uh, the rest of the congregation. And, and last week, Pastor Jeff had me do the part of the sermon over at Trinity Church that was recounting the history. And I was just deeply moved, and, and I felt like I, I wanted so much to be able to share with this congregation uh, what the legacy is that we're now embracing and becoming a part of. Because nothing is done, this is just a new chapter in what God is doing in this area. And as I was studying through, uh, Pastor Jeff gave me some of the historical documents uh, from the church. It was started in 1906. And in 1956, they celebrated their 50th anniversary. And I was very moved in reading uh, the pastor at that time and his sort of, his sort of uh, capturing what had gone on in the church in those first 50 years. And I wanted to share that with you um, this morning. He says this. This is Pastor Raymond Martin. He says, 50 years ago... Eleven Christians in Berkeley, they started in Berkeley and then moved out to El Cerrito in, in 1963. Fifty years ago, eleven Christians in Berkeley with magnificent faith and vision cast a stone into the ocean of eternity, and in ever-widening circles, the ripples of blessing have spread over the face of the earth. When I read that, I was so humbled just at the, at the, the writing and the depth of it. The historic event took place on December 31st, 1906, at the home of Mr. and Mrs. August Peterson, 2615 Virginia Street, in the heart of a city that was destined to become one of intellectual learning. Much change has taken place. This is written in 56. Much change has taken place since the beginning of the Evangelical Free Church of Berkeley. The city has changed. The church building has changed. The times have changed. But our message is still the same. Yes, the message we preach from our pulpit Christ crucified, risen, and coming again is essentially the same message that was preached many years ago by the founders of the church. How we should rejoice that the message is the same, but beloved, the need is far greater than it has ever been before. We must send forth the precious gospel message to a tottering world so marred by sin. And that's so true today. If you've been following the news this week, it's sort of mind exploding all the things that are happening in our world. And this message, this gospel message, is for a broken world just like that. And so I just want to reiterate that uh, Trinity uh, is in a new chapter, and that, in chap that chapter is now intertwined with Solano in a particular way. We've already been together uh, intertwined to some degree, and now just more so. And I want to encourage all of us who make Solano, have been making Solano our home, to be mindful and to be inviting those who are coming from Trinity to be a part of this church and to be a part of our home groups and to get connected in that way. And we're going to continue to think forward about uh, replanting a, co a congregation in the Trinity, at the El Cerrito campus. That will be happening after, the after my sabbatical. I'll be back in the middle of the summer and we'll begin work on that. 
And we're also, this is an interesting note, building relationship with the original church building on Blake Street in Berkeley. There's an, there's a, an old uh, African-American church there now, uh, and mostly elderly people called the Deliverance Temple. And we're actually going to be enfolding them, hopefully, into our Count Me In project, which is coming up. So some really neat things happening, bringing all of this together that I feel like God is orchestrating. And uh, I was so moved by that history. It's really important for us as a congregation to live into it and to learn it together. And it kind of can provide a segue to our text today. Well, I'm a preacher, so I can make a segue with everything, right? Um, but, but it is a segue because you think about the church in the city. And today's theme is really having to do with the city. Um, we, 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 we celebrated Jesus entering the city on the donkey. And as we celebrated that, we think about the Jerusalem of the day and, and Jesus coming to the city. We're thinking about the church in the city of Berkeley and the city of El Cerrito in the city of Albany and the, the uniting of those together. Uh, and we're thinking about in our passage in the book of Revelation, chapter 17 and 18, the city in two senses, the corrupted city and the redeemed city. So if you would open your Bible to chapter 17 in the book of Revelation, we'll look together at this, what I find to be just a remarkable passage, helping us to understand the nature of the city and what God is doing. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and we'll hand one to you. It's page 719 in that particular Bible that we hand out. So please don't be shy about that. We'd love for you to follow along. And I'll admit right off that this is a, a large portion of text we're actually going to finish over in chapter 19, and there's no way that we can go through it all. I wish we had more time because there's so much depth and richness to it, but I'm going to give you sort of a bird's eye, high-level view of what's happening here, and then draw some, hopefully, applications out of that for your life uh, going forward. So uh, what is the city is, is the question that we begin with. What is the city? And, and it's got its negative and its positive form. In its negative form, it's the purest expression of self-sufficiency at a societal level. And uh, this, this is characterized by pride and by power and by wealth and by the violence that stems from all of those. If we trace the history of the city all the way back to the beginning, we can trace it to the Tower of Babel right in the 11th chapter of the Bible in Genesis when the people gathered together and they all spoke one language and they wanted to raise up a tall tower because what? They wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to make a name for themselves. And it's that prideful desire to make a name for self that characterizes the negative expression of the city. Uh, in, in this particular text that we're looking at, that's described as people selling their souls to power. So you've got the kings and the powerful ones who are all about seeking power. That's their driving motivation. But then you've got those who are pursuing wealth, gold and silver and fine linen, and all of the idols that were associated with these things. There was a sea industry through which they uh, transported all of these goods, and there was a whole uh, constellation of, of worship centered around all of these facets of society. So there would be idols for all the different elements, for safety and for travel and for seas and for gold. And, 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 and the people would worship these idols in order to win favor so that they could get what they want. It was this whole system, religious system, an economic and power system that characterized 
the cities, all the way from Babel, which became Babylon, we call it Babylon, which is the city that was always in contrast with the people of God and eventually overrunning the people of God. You see it in places like Nineveh in the Old Testament. Remember where Jonah was called to go and he didn't want to go there because it was such an awful place. It was so corrupted, the city. And he knew God would be merciful and they would repent. And he didn't want to go. He didn't want to help them. And then all the way through to the time of the book of Revelation, now we're thinking about Babylon again, but it's a symbol for Rome, the Roman Empire, and for the city of Rome at the very center of it, the seat of power. And, and on and on. This has been characteristic of cities and their negative expression all throughout time. Um, they're described as, as uh, being characterized by these three groups, the powerful, the economic, uh, industry people, and then uh, those who are working to make all that happen. And we see that in our text. We see kings and merchants and shipmasters all working together uh, in order to gain from the city the wealth and the power that they want. Now, John's vision tells a story with this really graphic metaphor. And if you didn't understand all that I just said that's underlying the theology of the city, then the metaphor would probably overwhelm you because it's so graphic and so powerful. Uh, but the metaphor that he uses, the metaphor, the city is a woman. And the negative expression of the city is a woman who is a prostitute. So look with me in chapter 17, partway through the third verse. John is telling what he's seeing in this vision from Jesus. He says, I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. Now, if you've been with us over the last weeks, you know that that's a reference to the Antichrist, the second beast that came from the sea. The woman has dressed, uh, was dressed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, jewels, and pearls. So all that industry is connected to the woman. She had a golden cup in her hand filled with everything detestable and with the impurities of her prostitution. I know this is strong language, but God is trying to make a very powerful point here. On her forehead was written a name... Uh, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the detestable things of the earth. Then I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses to Jesus. And so in the machinations of the city, the people of God are crushed. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished, which makes sense. You might be greatly astonished as well as you read this text and it sort of washes over you. Um, but I think as we go through this, you're going you're gonna to get an increasingly deep understanding of what is actually going on here and what God is trying to say. And the powerful imagery is very important for our understanding of what God is actually doing in the world. It really captures this metaphor how societies will sell their soul to the highest bidder right? That's that idea of prostitution. Sell their soul to the highest bidder. And this is what we've defined so many times in our gatherings together and as we've read the scriptures as idolatry. So there's this powerful link between prostitution and idolatry. And, and let me just remind us, or for those of us who haven't heard it, of the definition of idolatry, idolatry that we work with. An idol is anything not God that has become an object of our allegiance, devotion, affection, worship, in an ultimate sense. So anything 
that we seek to devote ourselves to or worship or idolize in an ultimate sense becomes an idol and it takes the place that was originally intended for God in our hearts and our lives. And so broadly, we can, we, we learned about this, by the way, when we were in the study of Hosea, right? When we looked at the book of Hosea, we saw that combination between um, the prostitution and idolatry. The two are connected together. People longing for something, giving themselves to the highest bidder in the hopes that they would get what they long for. And broadly speaking, idolatry can manifest itself in all kinds of ways. We can seek approval through things like social media. So, so sometimes the idol of social media becomes a conduit through which we seek to get our needs met, our approval needs, right? So how many times do you, how many likes did I get? Or what, you know, these are forms of idolatry creeping into our lives. Um, it, it can happen uh, with academics. And, and as the pastor said, who was pastoring uh, the Trinity Free Church in the 1950s, that this is a place of, uh, an intellectual place. And we see that over and over again. And, and that's a wonderful thing. It's a good thing. But one of the downfalls is we begin, we begin to put our trust in our intellect and our ability to think well and to be known as thinkers, and that becomes uh, part of our sense of approval and our identity in an unhealthy way. Um, another idol we seek after sometimes is comfort, and it's through the acquisition of things or, sh or money uh, that provide for us a sense of comfort and control. That's another idol that we struggle with. Um, we can seek power through... Uh, through titles. We can th seek intimacy through pornography, which can become an idol and control. I already mentioned through order orderliness or body image. Just, there's an endless number of idols that we pursue today. So when we're thinking about the idolatries of Babylon or Rome, we ought not to disconnect ourselves too much from what's happening there. It's still happening today. And a city is a place where all this goes on on steroids. Because people gather together and they can encourage one another and they create systems that reinforce. It's the center of power for all of these things. That's what a city is. That's what the negative expression is of the city. And it's not just kind of a whoops, oh, we accidentally worshipped an idol. This is why the strong language in the scripture about prostitution. Because when we worship something that's not God, it's equivalent to being an adulterous person in your marriage. That's, the, that's the, the sense in which God receives it. So it's not just kind of a, whoops, I did something wrong. It's, it's, there's, there's gravity to this. And that's why the powerful language, because without the powerful language, we wouldn't understand how much it grieves the heart of God when we worship things that are not Him. And how much it destroys us from the inside. So when Jesus then first enters the city, right? That's what Palm Sunday is about. Jesus is entering the city of Jerusalem which was supposed to be the redeemed city, but it's the corrupted city. And he enters right into the heart of it, to the center of all of this idolatry and corruption on steroids. And he enters into the city, and what does he do? The disciples wanted him 
to rule the city with force. They wanted him to take over in a political, military way. And they thought that he was going to. And they thought they would be on his right and his left. Jesus, come with force. Use your power. We've seen you heal people. We've seen you do miraculous things. Would you take all of that power now and bring your military, make it military, military and, and would you overwhelm the Romans and establish our heavenly city by your power? That's what the disciples were looking for. In a sense, he would be coming in on that mighty horse, right, that would be, that would be uh, you know, covered in, in you know, you know, some sort of protective uh, outside and, and, and he would have a weapon and he would come into the city and he would take it over. And then Jesus on Palm Sunday comes in on a donkey. What's a donkey? It's really short. So he's not on this mighty war horse. He's on this donkey that's oftentimes hard to get to go in the right direction. And a donkey, in this case, and we read the passage earlier, is a symbol of peace. So Jesus comes in not to make war in the city, but he comes in on this donkey as a symbol of, of peace. What's he doing? Jesus, what are you doing? Why are you coming in to the city in this way? Why don't you bring your force? Why don't you bring your power? And, 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 and the answer is that Jesus is doing a beautiful thing in the city. He's preaching a message of repentance because at the end of the day he knows this he knows this really really important truth and that is if anything is going to be transformed it starts in the heart it's got to start in the heart if we're going to have a redeemed city we got to deal with people's hearts and when Jesus enters the city it's to address the hardness of heart the sin on the inside and so as he preaches and teaches he makes his way to the cross and he offers himself an atoning sacrifice. There's a whole body of understanding associated with what Jesus was doing, built up in the Old Testament, about the sacrifice which would atone for sin. And Jesus on that cross is that lamb, that sacrificial lamb, to atone for sin because what he's really after in that moment is the heart. It's a beautiful project. And the disciples don't understand it. Why don't you bring your power, make, make a, get a political win? And God wants to do a character win first. He wants to transform people from the inside. And that's what he does. And this is, this is what Christ is seeking so that the inhabitants of the redeemed city would be transformed on the inside because that's what's required. That's why the cross, that's why the first entrance into the city. And this is the key to the beautiful city. It's a redeemed place. It's oriented on God. There's no more idolatry. The idolatry is gone. People aren't worshiping not God anymore. God is at the very center of the city. It's centered on God. And so I'm going to give us a peek ahead into what's going to happen in the next weeks in the book of Revelation. Turn over to Revelation 21. And here you're going to see the city imagery and the woman imagery all coming together. Chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, 
coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Now when you understand the metaphor of the people of God as the woman and Babylon being the prostitute, and now you see the people of God as the bride adorned and prepared for Jesus Christ, who's the husband. And if you look over in chapter 21, verses 22, I did not see a temple in it, because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. That's, that's the very center of the city where the temple would be, but it's not there because it's no longer needed, because God himself is there at the center. The city does not need the temp, its temple. Excuse me. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. Nothing Unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or is false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. And that's a reference to the atonement that Christ made, the Lamb made on the cross. So if somebody's come to faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that's what the atonement means, then his name in her, or her name is written in the Lamb's book of life, and therefore he or she becomes a citizen of the redeemed city. So you see this incredible contrast between the city, the devastating prostitute metaphor, as, as devastating as that is, the metaphor of the city as prostitute, just as devastating as, as beautiful is the metaphor of the city as the bride, which comes down out of heaven. Remember the bride, too, this is a really important point, is always, when we're talking about the people of God, the bride is always a former prostitute. Because the people of God have sinned and worshiped not God. So this is the, this is the amazing story of the Bible, that, that God is taking the prostitute. That's, that's us. Because we've worshipped things that are not God. And he's making us into a beaming bride. And he brings us down the aisle and weds us to himself. In all purity and cleanliness. When we didn't deserve any of it. We, we, in fact, we did everything the opposite. The whole story of the Bible is, is the culmination in that moment of God transforming his people from prostitute to gleaming bride. It's an important note here. We, we hold on to the biblical language around gender terms because they create the mental furniture that we need to be able to understand our relationship to God. You understand what I'm saying there? We hold on to the, the biblical terms around gender because they create the mental furniture for us to understand our relationship to God. Another way 
to talk about that is in relation to God, we are all feminine. We're the bride. And part of God explaining to us who he is and what he's doing is bound up in that language. So we cherish it and we hold on to it and we nurture it because it's good. In fact, the very source of gender is in the story of God's redemptive plan. He made it so that we would understand ultimately who he is, not the other way around. He didn't use this thing that already existed and then try to turn it into something that... No, God created it in itself so that we would understand who he is and we would understand what it means to be in relationship to him. So the language is important. But now we come full circle. Um, our passage ends, what we're looking at this morning, ends with another entrance of Jesus. So the first one, he was on a donkey, which is a symbol for peace and humility. Um, and that fits his mission where he's getting into the hearts of people. He's dressing the, addressing the inner element of what it means to be a person and our sinfulness. But we have another entrance that's in our text. So this is the second coming of Jesus. Look over in chapter 19, starting in verse 11. This is the one the disciples longed for the first time. This is what they were hoping for. But God had a work to do in healing broken people first and making them ready for the heavenly city. So it wasn't that he wasn't going to enter in in might and power and strength and have his way, establish his kingdom. It's just that he had something to do first, which is to go die on the cross and atone for our sin. But now, chapter 19, verse 11, John sees this. He says, Then I saw heaven open, and there was not a donkey, but a white horse. That's a symbol of power. Its rider is called faithful and true, and that language connects all the way into the very deepest understanding of who God is. And he judges and makes war with justice. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. You notice in the last chapters, we've had all kinds of names written on people's heads and descriptions, names of, of who they are. And here, there's a name that nobody can understand. It's too great and wondrous and mysterious and beautiful and glorious for, easy, for us to wrap our minds around. It's the infinite nature of Christ, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses, wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. So this is what they were hoping for, the disciples. Now it's actually going to happen. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh. King of kings and Lord of lords. It's a very political statement, actually, because the emperor in Rome was referred to as the king of kings and the Lord of lords because all the other kings around were vassals to him. They all came and they bowed down before him. So John is out on a limb to say something like this. This is getting in trouble, right? But here's the thing. King of kings, Lord of lords, 
There's no allegiance to the other sub-kings, and that's where we get stuck all the time. We get stuck in giving our allegiance to the kings that are not really kings. When you look at what's going on in our world, you see that over and over again. You see the Christian church doing that. We only have one king of king and lord of lords. We've got to get better at demonstrating to the world that our allegiance is to that king first and foremost. But there's this. Notice that when he shows up on the scene, he's already covered in blood. Why is that? Why is his robe already dipped in blood? Because he's already given his life for his people. He's already taken that prostitute people who's been worshiping not God, cheating on God, and he's already offered himself an atoning sacrifice for their redemption to make them a beautiful bride. You want to talk about knight in shining armor? This is it. This is where it all comes from right here. This is the quintessential knight in shining armor who has come to save us a lost, corrupted, prostituted people. And he will establish his home with us. That's the new heaven and the new earth. And at the very center is this glorious city that is no longer corrupted but redeemed. And at the center of it, people are worshiping God and they're living in the way they're supposed to be living. All the the gifts that they have are being Uh, released in that city for the purpose of serving others and blessing others and ministering to others, and there's just goodness all around. We'll get into that vision in the next weeks as we get into chapters 21 and 22. This is what God is accomplishing. And what he says in chapter 18, verse 4, is... To the people who are stuck in Babylon, come out of her, my people, he says. Come out of Babylon and be my bride. Come out and be my bride. Chapter 18, verse 4. Come out and breathe. Come out and beam like I intended you to beam. Standing at the aisle, waiting to be brought down cleansed from all your sin. It's one of my favorite moments when I do weddings is I often, I'm looking down the aisle and I'm supposed to, but I always try to sneak a glance over at the groom. Because when they see that bride show up, you know, hopefully, and usually this always happens, their face lights up, right? (laughs) We know in this case, Jesus' face lights up to see his Right, that's us. Prostitutes who've been made clean. That's the story of the Bible. We're the bride, the city of God. We walk down that aisle and he receives us with open arms. Outstretched arms, reminiscent of the cross. Faithful and true, waiting for us. We need to finish up. How do we beam? How do we beam like a bride? 
Well, the woman is a symbol for the people of God. That's all throughout the book of Revelation, all throughout the Bible, really. We see this over and over again. And we long as people for a relationship with God. And we can scramble like a prostitute selling our souls to false gods. Or we can fall into the arms of the one who stretched out his arms to us. The faithful and true one. That's who Jesus is. And so let me just start off. The first thing to do is to fall into the arms of Jesus Christ. That's number one. That's the first thing. We do that when we place our faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. When we declare it's true, yes, it's true what you say in your word, that you are the groom. And you've been faithful and true. When we believe, when we step out in faith to believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, we're falling into these arms. The second thing is Jesus wants to make us the beaming bride, no matter our background. This is a really important point because some of us may be here this morning and we're thinking about the ways that we've prostituted ourselves, whether that be actually or figuratively in worshiping things that are not God. And sometimes when we think about what we've done, how we've cheated on God, how he gave us life and breath and everything that we have, and we've turned around and used it for our own selfish desires, when we think about that, we feel like we're not worthy and there's no way we could ever be made worthy. But the story of Scripture is that you are worthy in Jesus Christ. No matter what, no matter how far you, no matter how low you've gone, You are worthy in Jesus Christ. Hear that. Don't let anybody ever take that away from you. That's why the imagery is so stark and so powerful, because we need it. Because when we finally get real with who we actually are, we see the devastation and the corruption of our own lives. And God meets us there already. When we come to terms with it, he's like, oh, I'm already here. See? Here's the language. This is why it's so important that we keep reinforcing this to one another. In Christ. All right. And the last one is that we live in Babylon. I know you've been watching the news this week, and there's 15 things. Boy, I'd hate to be a journalist right now. Gosh, so much going on in our world. It's overwhelming. And I know that many of us feel a lot. We take it in, and we feel the pain of Babylon. But Jesus says, come out. That's what he says, come out. Come out from seeking false gods. Come out from living as a citizen of Babylon and live like a citizen of the new Jerusalem. Live as if you are already there. That's what God is calling us to. To live as if we are already there. That's why we gather like we do to reinforce these powerful truths to one another. That's why we study the scripture because when you, when you get it, you start to put it all together. I can't wait to read the book of Revelation when I'm 70. And I've sat with the Old Testament and all, and all these symbols and everything just keep leaping off the page. It's why we absorb and sit in these books because it reinforces this powerful message and helps us to live as if we're already there. And just remember this, that it all starts with getting the worship right. That's the key. At the very center of the city 
There doesn't even need to be a temple. The temple, temple used to be where God was housed. The temple doesn't even need to be there because God is there at the very center. And the question for us is, where is he in your life? Is he at the very center? And have the idols been cast out, or are they in process of being cast out as God takes up residence at the center of your life? That is what God is doing. That is the story of redemption. That is the redeemed city. God, would you help us to live as if we are already there? For those in our midst this morning who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ, let this be a special day of belief, a crossing over, an exchanging of citizenship from Babylon to heaven, to Jerusalem. And for all of us, help us to live more and more as if we are already there in the city. We're going to celebrate communion this morning, and, and there's something wrapped up in this with our citizenship. Um, it's a reminder of where we're actually from. You know, when you're from somewhere, and you go to another place, and then you eat a meal that's from that other place, like let's just say you grew up in Mexico, and then you're in here, you're in the U.S., and you eat Mexican food, and there's something beautiful about eating Mexican food because it reminds you of where you're from. That's what this table is. That's what this table is. So come and be reminded of your citizenship today. We're going to ask you to come down the, wherever you see a screen, come from that direction and then go out the other direction. So God, meet us at this table. Remind us who we are. Thank you for being our knight in shining armor. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.